Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. So though I'm going to talk about the first foundation of, uh, first factor of the Eightfold Path tonight, um, our meditation practice uh, is always the seventh and eighth factors. And I went on and on last week about how this is not a linear path. It's not like first you understand, then you get to mindfulness later. It's actually mindfulness that leads to seeing clearly, that leads to understanding. Um, so we'll practice the, the meditative. Uh, and I, I believe that if you deeply meditate, you don't have to learn Buddhism, but if, that if you have a deep investigative, mindful, curious, uh, meditation practice, all of the rest of the Eightfold Path will be revealed to you. You don't actually have to learn it. Um, that what meditation does is it shows you this is what's true. This is, this is what's real. This is what's actually happening here and helps you see some of the delusions that your mind has been holding as delusions. And um, so we meditate together to, in service of, of seeing clearly. So find a way to sit that's upright, that's relaxed, meditative. <coughs> Allowing your eyes to be closed. Take a moment to make any adjustments necessary to your posture. Letting the body settle into relative stillness and softness, as relaxed as you can be, letting go of the tension that the body holds around the eyes or jaw, neck, shoulders, chest, belly. Let your hands rest in your lap or on your legs. So that the posture is somewhat balanced and effortless. With each exhale, see if you can soften more deeply. Soften the belly. We establish present time awareness here now this physical form, our bodies, sitting, feeling, breathing, 
becoming aware of the sense doors of hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting. The sense door of feeling, sensations. And the sense door of the mind, the heart, the emotional and mental activity that this body produces, this mind experiences. Then there is the awareness that the mind produces that can become aware of itself, conscious, intentional investigation, mindfulness. of the body, the heart, and the mind. It is said that all of the dharma, the truth about reality, will be revealed here in this form, this body. So take that as a prompt to investigate the present time experience in your body to see what's true. Becoming aware of the sensations that the breath creates.
You notice unnecessary tension in the jaw, shoulders or belly, investigate it. Is there something that you're trying to avoid, resist, hold on to? What happens when you soften, when you release the clenched jaw, the hard belly? Use the breath as an anchor to the present time experience in the body. You can also just open your awareness to your whole being with this quality of interest and investigation.
when you find your awareness drifting off into memories or plans, become aware of that. This is thinking. A proliferation of thought, the mind fantasizing or rehearsing. craving. If you become uncomfortable or agitated, anxious, bring your awareness to that. What does this discomfort really feel like? Where's the center of it? Where are the edges? What can you learn? from your current relationship to pain, to unpleasantness.
Is there any craving or clinging or resistance to this present moment? What happens if you relinquish, if you let go, if you accept yourself just as you are, these thoughts and sensations? these emotions.
So the Buddha's there with his friends in Saranath. His first time he's teaching the Eightfold Path. He's uh, come to awakening through his mindful investigation. And like I said before we sat, you know, the Buddha didn't, nobody taught him Buddhism. He just meditated and came to this profound experience of seeing clearly and being able to respond in a way to what he uh, was aware of that eradicated suffering from the equation, changing his relationship so radically to the pain that he continued to experience before awakening, during awakening, after awakening. But he said, I, I no longer suffer about it. Now I can meet all of the pain, both internal and external, with compassion. Mindfulness taught me how to do that. And so he's, he goes and he finds his friends and he gives them the first three truths, which we've talked about. Um, you know, he says, there's just suffering is normal. This is just a reminder for everybody. Suffering is normal. Suffering is true. Suffering is... Uh, it's part of birth. I think it's confusing for a lot of us because um, there is this pervasive delusion that you're supposed to be happy and that if you're not happy, maybe you're doing something wrong. We felt that way in your life. Like I should just be I should be okay. I should be happy. I shouldn't be suffering. And it's such a different frame, the way that the Buddha lays it. And he says, like, no, no, suffering, happiness is not your birthright. Happiness is something you have to work hard for. Ending suffering is possible, but it's something you're going to have to try very intently at doing because suffering is the norm. Having, you know, having some level of dissatisfaction of stress suffering sounds so intense and sometimes it very intense and sometimes it's just being stressed out just being dissatisfied you know the way that we translate dukkha is dissatisfaction dukkha is often translated as suffering and then you know the cause why is there suffering in our experience um, the origin always, from this perspective, 100% of the time, the reason we are unhappy, we are suffering, we are, is because of craving, is because of a repetitive internal <laughs> experience of craving for things to be different than they are. A lack of acceptance is one way to talk about it. Craving for our experience to be more pleasant, less unpleasant. 
the flip side of craving, craving manifests as attachment. Anytime you're attached, you're clinging, it's craving. Clinging and craving, same thing. You're trying to keep. You're clinging for uh, impermanence to not be true. Every time you get attached, you're not understanding the truth of impermanence. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's sitting there and he says, and it's possible to get completely free. Nirvana, niroda, cessation. That it's, a, it's an option. And each one of us has to decide how hard are we willing to work? How intent are we at actually freeing ourselves from suffering? And to what extent are we committed to seeing the truth of suffering, seeing the origin, the, the, the cause, and how uh, free are we committed to being? How hard are we willing to train our mind to practice renunciation? And, you know, then he would come to, to the tonight where um, he said there's these eight factors, these eight aspects of the path, eight folds, eight spokes. Not in order. We just did the seventh factor, our mindfulness. We were just developing the seventh factor of the eightfold path. Present time awareness, learning to investigate, to uh, experience the present with some understanding that their, their awareness is bigger, is receiving what's happening. It's not just sensation. There's awareness of sensation. It's not just emotion. It's awareness. And it's this mindfulness awareness that is going to allow us to choose our ch change our relationship to it, choose how we respond to what we are, are, are aware of. So he's sitting there and he says, you know, the first, the first part of view of understanding is just this review of what I'm doing with you is understanding the four truths. And we can each think about that. Do you walk through your life understanding and seeing everything as the four truths? seeing experience in the terms of, is this suffering or not suffering? Is this dukkha or is this nirvana? And so like when something, maybe it's easier to see in our relationship to others, but of course, very much so in our relationship to our own minds and our own emotions and sensations, but like when something happens to someone else, rather than seeing that as a blessing or a curse or as good or bad or tragic or wonderful, seeing in our relationship to each other, oh, you're suffering. And seeing like, oh, you, craving is causing your suffering. You're attached to something. You're resisting something that's happening. And seeing each other and ourselves through the lens of the four truths. What's true about this moment? I'm attached and I'm suffering. 
I'm aversive, I'm suffering, or I'm suffering. The cause of it is I'm not totally accepting reality as it is. I'm resisting it. I'm craving for it to be different than it is, and it's causing suffering. So this is a, an important reflection, and I think part of it's what's revealed through mindfulness. You'll start seeing this more in yourself and in the world, in each other, but it's also an active practice. Like you can take this as a practice into your life as you go through your life, constantly coming back to, is this suffering? Where can I identify the cause of the dissatisfaction, unhappiness, stress in this moment? Where's the craving? What am I attached to? What are they attached to? And, and more and more putting on the lens, the seeing through the lens of uh, everything, And it's so simple. I was having a conversation with a friend earlier who's been practicing for, I guess he's been practicing for about eight years now. And he said something like, the longer I've been practicing, the more I see how simple it is. <laughs> I really complicated it and I read all of the books and I got real Buddhist and I real intellectual with it. And, and he says, you're either attached or you're not attached. <laughs> It's really quite simple. You're either causing suffering because you're clinging or resisting, or you're not. And uh, most of you have heard the uh, Ajahn Chah, my teacher's teacher, the kind of lineage of the Thai forest tradition that I'm most closely connected with. Uh, he said, you know, this whole path could just be boiled down to two words. Your whole, you want to learn Buddhism? Two words. Let go. Spend the rest of your life letting go. <laughs> let go of the past. Let go of needing the future to be a certain way. Let go of needing the present to be any different than it is. And if you really let go, you won't suffer. It's always that we're holding on, trying to control, trying to make it different than it is. Not accepting, not letting go that's causing our suffering. Let go. Nirvana is letting go of that which is causing, it sounds easy, but as many of you who've been practicing for months or years or decades know, and it's why we call this place against the stream, it's why the Buddha said this whole thing is counter-instinctual against human, it's abnormal to let go. Non-attachment is not easy. <laughs> it sounds easy let go, non-attachment, but it's totally counter to our survival instinct. We are wired to not let go, to cling, to crave, to crave pleasure, to procreate. You need to fuck. You can't just be non-attached. You need to procreate. It's in your cells. It's in your wiring. Crave pleasure, hate pain. Totally normal, not our fault. But also, uh, how much do we suffer? Because we just are obeying the cravings. The body says, resist. Did you find that in your meditation tonight? Do you find any tension? 
so often when I'm meditating, I'll be like, why is my belly tight? Why am I clenching my jaw? And then I'll soften it and bring my awareness to like, oh, I was kind of resisting the present moment. <laughs> I was like bracing myself against nothing, but something. And what just that letting go, relinquishing, softening. So first aspect of the first factor of the Eightfold Path is uh, understanding the four truths and seeing that in your own moment-to-moment experience and seeing that it's true for everyone all of the time. And it will really help you if you start identifying, not just I'm suffering, I'm suffering because I'm attached. I'm suffering because I'm resisting. And seeing that in others too. Even when somebody's uh, having a lot of pain, emotional or physical pain, recognizing that it's not the pain that's causing their suffering. It's the resistance to the pain. It's the lack of compassion for the pain. It's the lack of acceptance to the pain. It is possible to be in a lot of pain and not suffer about it. Sounds radical. It is radical, but it's also true. And the more you, this is where the old don't take my word for it, (laughs) Uh, find out for yourself. And you're getting a little bit of that in meditation. I feel like part of that's being revealed. The longer you learn to sit here with achy knees, with discomfort, with a sore back, it's one of the reasons why it's important to sit for more than 20 minutes, push it to 30, push it to 45, learn to sit for an hour and just be uncomfortable, increasing your tolerance for discomfort and seeing that actually I can be here and my back can be screaming and I can be completely at ease in my core because I've learned to not hate it, even though there's pain. I've learned to be at ease in the midst of pain. This is so much of what meditation is teaching us. The second piece and what I asked you to uh, reflect on in the small icebreaker groups is karma. The reality that we live in this process, in this system, this mind, this body, this world, um, subject to a law of cause and effect. Karma means actions. Karma means actions have consequences. Wise actions have desirable outcomes. (laughs) The list of wise actions are kindness, generosity, honesty, uh, loving, forgiving, patient, tolerant, accepting, you know, the skillful intentions have a good outcome. You become more patient, you become more loving, you become more tolerant, you become more generous, non-attached, accepting. There's a momentum that's created by our intentional actions. 
Anger creates more anger. Dishonesty creates more fear. Selfishness, uh, envy, jealousy, you know, the seven deadly, <laughs> sloth, covetousness, all of that stuff creates more craving, creates more fear, creates more dukkha, more suffering. There's an effect when we are intentionally dishonest. What's the karma of lying, of minimizing, of omitting? On some level, there is, a, if you have any level of a moral compass, there's fear of I'm going to get caught. There's regret. There's a way in which we have to close ourselves off from each other when we're not honest with each other. We can no longer be transparent. We can no longer be truly authentic. Part of the cost of dishonesty is that we become disconnected. Violence creates a violent momentum in, in your life. I spent my teenage years fairly violent and, and, um, and always afraid of violence. And always, it always found me. And I was engaging in it. And then when I started practicing and took a vow and an intention of nonviolence, it felt so like, wait a minute, I need to be able to fight and protect myself. And it used to feel like I used to, you know, People used to attack me. But when I stopped attacking other people, they stopped attacking me. When I stopped talking shit to people, people stopped punching me in the face. It's amazing how that works. Karma explains, and again, you have to sit with this. You have to reflect on it. You have to see if it feels true to you in your own direct experience. But the understanding here is see yourself through the lens of karma. That everything that you're experiencing, all of the ways that your mind works now, all of the ways your relationship to pain, your relationship to pleasure is all conditioned by how you've been relating to pleasure and pain so far. The karma of your past hatred of pain is that you currently aren't very tolerant. The karma of learning to sit with your own pain, turn towards it, tend to it, is that in the future, in the present and in the future, as you move forward, you're going to become more and more tolerant towards your own pain. You're going to, uh, the karma of resenting and justifying your anger and your resentments and your judgments and your superiority or whatever it manifests for you and having spent your life doing that is that you find yourself in a place where I'm right, they're wrong, and, and I'm suffering about it. 
And then as you come in and develop the karma of forgiveness, the karma of compassion, the karma of humility, and practice that, my intention is to be humble, is to forgive, is to have compassion for myself and others. And you start to see it. This is actually changing my relationship. The karma of hating for all those years brought me to the cushion, to the practice, to the path. Angry, hateful, afraid. And then sitting here and intentionally developing compassion, intentionally developing forgiveness creates the outcome of the positive fruit of I'm becoming more compassionate, more tolerant, more forgiving, more honest, more integrity. Cause and effect. So we're in this path and the, the, this first is, is understanding that this shit works. The seeds you plant are what grows. That's a simple image. You plant dishonesty, dishonesty grows in your life. You plant hatred, hatred grows in your life. You plant, but you start planting honesty and integrity and compassion and forgiveness, and you keep watering that with your intentions, and you start to have a life where compassion and forgiveness come easy to you. It might take you a while to get to the place where it feels easy, it feels natural, but that is the direction that you're leading when you're planting those seeds, watering those seeds. That's what will come into fruition. I'm wearing my Buddhist atheist shirt tonight. There's nowhere in understanding that the Buddha said anything about understanding any kind of higher powers or everything is humanist psychology. All about how the human mind works, what causes us to suffer, how we create our own suffering, how we can end our own suffering through our own actions. No divine interventions, no understand the great creator, none of that stuff. And, he, you know, he was in a culture of polytheism and there was the gods, there's Shiva and there's Ganesh and there's Krishna and there's, there's all the, the Hindu deities, gods. And, and in some places uh, in, in Buddhist cosmology, when asked about the gods, sometimes when he's asked about like the origin of creation, that kind of stuff, he just wouldn't answer it. He said it's imponderable and it's not, it's not even worth uh, hypothesizing about. He's like, I don't teach creation myths. I teach human, you know, spiritual transformation through our own efforts. Not how did we get here? Why is it like this? Just the truth of there's karma and there's the ability to change our karma, to purify our karma, to train our minds, our hearts. And that it's all very much personal responsibility. You have to do the work yourself. Nobody can do it for you. 
You can have the, you know, even people would come to him and say, you're an enlightened Buddha. Like, can I have some grace? Can I have some blessings? Can I have some darshan? You know, can I, can I have this, like, your blessing? And he'd be like, I can't do anything for you. Here's the Four Noble Truths. Here's how to practice mindfulness. I can show you that. You have to do all of the work yourself. And he developed a view that was non-theistic, a teaching. Buddhism is non-theistic, early Buddhism. Atheist is probably too strong. Atheist kind of means like, I am certain that there is no God. But non-theistic is um, just saying like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the human condition and how human beings have the power, the potential, the ability through their own efforts without divine intervention to free themselves from suffering, that this is the teaching. One of the ways karma is taught um, is in the teaching of dependent origination, the 12 links of dependent origination. The 12 links of dependent origination are an explanation of, of, of the first noble truth of how we create suffering for ourselves, how karmically we create suffering for ourselves and how we're in this cycle, this constant unconscious, reactive, habitual cycle of clinging and craving and creating suffering. that because we're ignorant, we're not awake to, um, that we're just in this physical form that craves, that we're not being mindful enough of the um, second foundation of mindfulness, the feeling tone, what everything that the eye sees, everything that the ear hears, everything that the nose smells, the taste, tongue tastes, the mind thinks, the heart feels, every aspect of our every experience, every moment is being perceived as either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And this is independent origination. He's the way you have this mind. And because you're ignorant of the true impermanent nature of things, as soon as the sense doors make contact with something pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, there's an almost automatic clinging, craving, and the suffering that follows, the dissatisfaction, the grief of loss because we're attached, the grief of not getting what we want because we're craving, the dissatisfaction of even when you get what you want because it's impermanent, it doesn't last. 12 links of dependent origination are happening every single moment at every single sense door. Her one teacher, I think it might've been Buddha Dasabhikkhu, who said, okay, there's these 12 links and it's happening every moment. And it's happening so fast. It's a little bit like falling out of a tree and the 12 branches that you pass as you go splat <laughs> by the time you know, by the time you fall off of the top of a tree you're like oh shit there's sense doors oh there's clinging oh there's craving ouch 
but that it's mindfulness that slows it down. That it's mindfulness, it's being concentrating the mind and becoming mindful of like, oh, I'm seeing and it's pleasant. Oh, there's craving to that pleasant, let go. Oh, I'm sitting here in, in my meditation posture. My right knee is in pain. It's unpleasant. I'm bringing mindfulness to that. And then I have the choice. Am I going to hate it and suffer about it? Or can I break that cycle of creating suffering by meeting it with compassion, meeting it with tolerance, by letting go of needing it to not be painful and just being with like, yep, it's, it's painful. I had a major surgery on this knee. It still hurts most of the time, especially when I sit like this. And being able to be mindful of unpleasant sensation. Breaking the cycle. It's the um, between the seventh, seventh and eighth factors is where the body becomes a, awareness, becomes uh, the sense doors make contact with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and then there's clinging, and then clinging leads to suffering. Again, if do you understand that? Does that make sense to you? I mean, it really can boil down to clinging creates suffering. It comes back to the, it's like a detailed explanation of why the second noble truth leads to the first noble truth, why we are suffering and it's caused by our clinging, our craving, our, and it's a way to see it, to understand it and to do something about it so that there's an actual intervention. Mindfulness is the intervention. Non-attachment is the intervention. Compassion is the intervention that we can develop with a long-term mindfulness practice. I was really light on the meditation instructions tonight because sometimes I feel like I'm um, leading, uh, leading the witness a little too much. <laughs> and that there's something quite good in meditation about just being the witness and seeing what you see rather than what the meditation teacher is directing you to see and kind of, um, but one of the classic instructions in, in Vipassana insight, mindfulness meditation, is the investigation of the three characteristics. And it's the next thing on the list of understanding on this first factor of the Eightfold Path. Understand that everything internal and external is impermanent. And we're always talking, I'm always talking about that. Buddhism is always talking about but it's a difference between, and with all of this understanding, with this view, I think I said last week, the difference between um, knowledge and insight or knowledge and wisdom. Like, you know, everything's impermanent, right? But do you really walk around knowing that it's impermanent? How many situations would you not get yourself into if you're really awake 
to the impermanence of that situation? How many of the internal reactions would you not be so attached to if you're really awake to this is impermanent? Even with our unpleasant emotions, afflictive emotions, if you're really awake to like, this is just excruciating fear that has a beginning, a middle and an end, it won't last forever, it's impermanent. You'd be more tolerant of that fear, of that anger, of that sadness, of that, whatever the difficult mind state emotion is. It's impermanent. Everything, everything is impermanent. First characteristic, because everything is impermanent, understanding that nothing is going to really satisfy you because no matter how good it is, it's not gonna last. So the unsatisfactory nature and the fact that we live with this, I sort of point to my chest as though repetitive craving is somewhere right in here. <laughs> well, I don't, know if, I don't know if it's my mind that is doing the repetitive craving or my heart, my sternum, but it just feels like there's this repetitive, I need more. I need it to last. I need more pleasure. I need more whatever it is, that is fueling all of us all of the time. So the impermanent and the unsatisfactory, sometimes translated as unreliable, because everything's impermanent, there's an unreliable uh, aspect to everything. No matter how close your relationship no matter how strong your friendship, no matter how uh, solid the structure feels, you know, like our solid with straight lines. (laughs) You know, I don't know how long this building's been here. Probably, I'd imagine maybe since the 40s or 50s and it's made out of cinder block and cement and feels like reliable. It's fucking solid building. And, you know, some level it is. So far, it's been here for decades. But also, an earthquake could come any minute. (laughs) We had one one Friday night, remember, a couple months ago. In here? During the meeting. That's right. You know, also the reality is an earthquake could come any minute and totally demolish this building. Or a bomb, or a you know, bus could come down Lincoln and plow into us and who knows what would happen. So that understanding that everything's impermanent, constantly changing, unsatisfactory, unreliable, and seeing through that um, lens that our sense of security, our sense of safety, our sense of of, uh, reliableness is very relative and on some level is delusional. Now, that having been said, there is something very healthy about having a false sense of security in your friendships, in your relationships, in your communities, to feeling like, oh, this place is totally safe. We're good. Cinder blocks and cement. You don't want to get so, you know, kind of awake to the unreliable nature of things that you're constantly feeling insecure and and unsafe. 
So there's that great, ultimately, like there's no such thing as safety. It's completely a delusion. But on a relative level, it's good to feel safe. There's a balance between how you feel and how you perceive. When we talk about this, I, since I started telling myself this too shall pass when I'm going through something hard, it doesn't remind me that, well, nothing is forever. Yeah. So, yes. Impermanence. On the other hand, yeah, so I'm suffering for whatever reason right now, but it's not going to be forever. Impermanence is just as you're saying, it's lib it's good news when it's difficult. <laughs> Not such good news when it's great. And we're much more likely to bring in the this too shall pass mantra when it sucks. In the middle of joy, you're not, this too shall pass. <laughs> this is so good, but it's totally going to pass. <laughs> Rarely reminding ourselves of the reality of impermanence when it's pleasant. Almost always when it's unpleasant. <laughs> but it's true both times. And so that's part of, you know, the Buddha saying, look through the lens of understanding that pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's in, in, impermanent. The last characteristic on our land here, and there's actually more to the uh, understanding. So I might continue this next week. We'll see. But the last aspect of understanding, um, and it deserves more time than the next five minutes, is the impersonal or the not self. It's that relative, that like what you were just saying, the uh, on a relative level, you are temporarily your body, your mind, your emotions, you are, you've incarnated, I've incarnated, <laughs> I am living in this meat sack for now. <laughs> but ultimately, through mindfulness, when we look inward and we investigate, and we all have that sense of I am me. You know, like if you ask yourself, who am I? What is, what is your, what does your mind say? Who are you? And there's some identification with our bodies. Well, I'm this gender. I identify as this gender. I'm this age, this ethnicity, this um, maybe, maybe, you maybe you think you're a Buddhist or something. <laughs> maybe you, maybe you think you're an addict in recovery. Maybe you, you've got a, probably a lot of labels of who you are. But when you really investigate, like, are any of those ultimately true? My true nature, or are any of them uh, permanent? Do they? Do I take them with me when I die? Was I born with them? Uh, how much of them are societal? How much of them are um, conditioned? Is there some part of us that is unconditioned? And is there a permanent self in that unconditioned aspect of your being? The Buddha didn't think so. His own experience was that in deep contemplative investigation, all he saw was the impermanent, unreliable process 
of a body and a heart and a mind and consciousness and memory creating a feeling of I am. And there was all of those factors coming together that create the illusion of a permanent self. Because then you feel like you're the same person that you were when you were a kid. Remember being a kid? And all the feelings that you had when you were a kid? And here you are decades later and you still feel like, yeah, that was me. I was that scared, lonely, awkward kid or really happy kid or whatever your memories are. But what remains of that kid in our present experience other than a mental impression? There's memory of it. There's consciousness. There's this illusion that I am this unchanging self that other religions call a soul, right? There's an unchanging, eternal, permanent. So in Hinduism, sometimes they call it your true self. Even in Buddhism, sometimes I think I've been guilty of using the term true nature or true self. Anatta the absence of a permanent self. Everything's impermanent. Everything's unsatisfactory and everything is impersonal. This I, me, mind that we cling to, this ego self that we suffer about is created. It's as real as rainbows just as real as rainbows. <laughs> I like the rainbow analogy. Most of you have heard it, but if you follow me here, rainbows are real, right? They are real things that you can see. But just like the self isn't something that you can touch. I mean, you can touch your body and you can say, well, I'm this physical form, but, a rain but that's not, you know, this body is impermanent. There's no, there's no cells left in this body that were here seven years ago. Every, you know, because of cellular regeneration and the impermanent nature of, of everything internal, you're constantly changing. So at least every seven years, you're a totally new incarnation, but you don't feel like it. You feel like, no, I'm that same person from when I was a kid or an adolescent or a young adult or wherever you're stuck, <laughs> wherever you're still identified with your, your favorite go-to historical self that you think is that's still me so the the rainbows uh, are created by light and moisture and something to bounce off of so some solidity you know earth moisture light and you get the the, the right uh factors come into and there's you know there's some moisture over there and the sun is in the right direction and there's the ocean or the mountain or whatever it is, and it creates a rainbow. And we all see it and we're all like, that's fucking a rainbow. And it's amazing. So cool, I saw a rainbow. The self is the same way. If you have a body and a mind, consciousness and memory, it throws off a rainbow of I am. 
And if you never investigate it, you just go through your whole life thinking, I am this permanent self. I'm my body, I'm my ego, I'm, this is who I am. Mindfulness helps us unpack it. And then you start to see through mindfulness, through investigation, oh, these are just memories and a physical form and consciousness knowing it that has created this way that I've been taking it all personal. I've been incarnating and walking around as though I'm this fucking rainbow. (laughs) As if there's some sort of pot of gold that I have to protect. That's my ego self. I to fucking protect it from the leprechauns or whoever we're, I don't know. Mixing metaphors. So this is the understanding that uh, you have to look for, look in your meditation. Where are you? Who are you? What are you? What is awareness? No, is there anything unchanging? Good question. Let me know. <laughs> really look like it, because it can feel like it. I mean, it, it is a good question. Look at it in your own practice. Does awareness feel like it's changing? Or does it feel so solid and, you know, long-term? You've got a, a deep <laughs> practice, Robert. So keep asking that. Keep looking at that. And um and maybe it is awareness, you know, Ajahn Chah and Sumedho and those guys in that lineage would say, like, if there's anything to identify with, identify with that. Be the one who knows the awareness that is unborn, that is undying, that is uh, unadulterated. But rather than hanging our hat on I am consciousness, keep looking. Because consciousness is just a byproduct of a brain. And there is a bigger picture here beyond this physical form and brain. The karma that we're creating can ripen in this lifetime or possibly future lifetimes. And you're not going to bring this brain with you into the next birth. And some level of consciousness is going to migrate. Some karmic momentum is going to migrate if reincarnation is true. So we can't, you know, it's not that permanent. It's temporarily arising based on the causes and conditions of this incarnation. Last one, we're out of time, but I'm, and I'm going over. This is a quick one. So, <laughs> sure. Why do, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, I mean, it's like I know it's a good question, but um, you know, like you see really good people, you see kids, you know, dying, you see, you know, really good people in the world, bad things happening to them. You know, you see Donald Trump becoming president. It's like you know, it's like, <laughs> there's all this like. Um, you know, cause and effect and this karmic stuff, you know, and you wonder, like, you know, it's not a quick answer, but I well, want to get your 
if reincarnation is happening, if there's a multiple life process unfolding here, um, not to get too political, but what do you think Trump's next incarnation is going to look like? <laughs> so when we look at people having not very good looking incarnations and you think, oh, they're so innocent. How could that happen to that person? But with the history of ignorance on this planet, of war and violence and oppression. And, and if there is a cycle that's a multiple lifetime cycle, where are all of those uh, greed, hatred and delusion based people reincarnating? Where are we gonna reincarnate? You know, like, yes, yeah, so we're, you know, we're trying to purify our karma, but we have our karma. I don't know. I, you know, my, I can reflect on my own childhood um, and some abuse and some trauma and all of that stuff. And I can be open to like, maybe I brought that shit with me from a past life. Maybe I was born into those situations from my own past actions. Maybe I'm not sure, but maybe, because I can also look at myself and look at children and all children and be like, they're fucking innocent. They didn't do anything. But if reincarnation is happening, we bring some shit with us, both the good intentional karma, we bring that with us, and some of our unfinished business. I think also there's generational karma as well, right? Societal, generational, I mean, just being born into this, you know, this generation, this society with the history of racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, genocide, slavery, the karma of just being here is something for all of us. It's way bigger. I don't have all of the answers. It's one of the things for me that I kind of like, I don't know. When it, when it comes to karma, I think it's more skillful um, to look at not that question, to try to set aside that question because it's sort of such a wormhole, but to just look at directly how we are responding to what's happening now, our action of how we respond to the reality of our current situation, the reality of other people's current situation, without blame, without judgment, without uh, you know, victims or of just like what's happening, how do I respond in the most compassionate way, in the most generous way, in the most loving way to what is, rather than why is it like this? So kind of set the why is it like this question aside. We are out of time. I'm sorry, Jesse, I'll hang out if you want to ask after, but I'm going to let people go since I'm already five minutes over. A um, couple of announcements. The big part of our practice is meditation retreat. We have an opportunity against the stream retreat May end of May, Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we've had a very generous, large donation from someone in the Sangha to create scholarship money for that. 
Um, it's cost $650. It's only a three-day retreat and it costs that much because it all of that money goes to the retreat center. They're charging us $200 a day. That's, um, but somebody has donated a few thousand dollars so that we can give half price scholarships so that people can come for the weekend for $300. So if you want to come, if you can afford it, pay the full price, leave the scholarship money for the people that can't afford it. But if you're somebody who doesn't have the money, wants to come to retreat, um, you can come for $300 for the three-day silent retreat, includes lodging and food and the teachings. And um, But register soon. First of all, those scholarships will get eaten up quickly, so register if you think you're going to come. Um, and also, the retreat center needs to know our final numbers within the next month or so. So um, register soon if you're coming to the Memorial Day retreat. I'll have a day long in April. I'll announce that later. Class is done by donation. So um, it's part of our practice to be generous, to uh, train our own uh, hearts and minds in, in non-attachment to our, our material things, to support out of gratitude, to support meditation centers like Against the Stream, Dharma teachers like me. Uh, very intentional. I've been teaching for over 25 years now. I've been teaching this Monday class in the West Side for 17 years. Never have charged anybody for a meditation class. Uh, it's, it's freely offered. And the reason that we're here tonight is because all of the people before you made donations so that we can have a meditation center so that I can pay my rent um, and be supported. So please continue that uh, to, to be part of that by, uh, by donating. Suggested donation is $15 to $20 for a drop-in class. Give whatever feels appropriate to you. You might feel like it's really appropriate to give thousands of dollars. That's okay. <laughs> or you might feel like I've got two bucks and that's what you can afford. And that's okay too. So, you know, you get to choose what, what feels appropriate to you. Sorry for going over tonight. I got excited. <laughs> Love this shit. To be continued, many goodness that comes from our practice be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us come to understand reality as it is. May we learn to respond wisely. May we end our suffering and together may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.